welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. It's an absolute joy, gentlemen, to be here with you this morning. I uh, have a deep admiration uh, for the Aussie male, and I don't say that in a flatterous way, but I am a lover of history and of the military. I spent a number of years in the South African Army, which was part of our duty back in the day. And uh, so that kind of teased my interest. And I found myself over the years drawn to your military background. And uh, the digger is a remarkable soldier, uh, a unique soldier. And uh, I think the best is seen in the Aussie male when uh, you are put in a position where your backs are against the wall and you have to fight for something. And then there is something that is remarkable that gets drawn out of you and uh, your ability to stand strong and to stand firm in the face of adversity. Not particularly intrigued are you with hierarchy, but you certainly are intrigued with mateship. And I take that as an incredible honor to, to just be in your story for a little bit this morning. I want to take you through some of the things that are just very deep and real and personal for me as a man. I'm 54. I am wonderfully married, 32 years come November with Meryl. Um, we are remarkably different. Um, I think, uh, for me, marriage is a love-filled adventure of incompatibility. <laughs> when people get divorced because they're incompatible, I'm kind of intrigued because that's why I got married. Um, I, I married Meryl because she's different from me and there are times when I desperately want her to think like a man and she in all feminine uh, w- tenderness would say to me, well, if you wanted me to be a man, why didn't you marry one? And then I'm normally quiet for a bit longer before it rises again. I have three children. My eldest daughter is married to Mark. They lead a church in Perth. So we have a deep investment in this country. Our three grandkids are Aussie, they, uh, they live and have grown up in Perth, and uh, we've been coming to Australia f- since 1990. So uh, it's a remarkable, honest joy and privilege for me to just take you down a road and share some of the moments in our story um, that I think could be helpful to you. My son, who's American-born, my two daughters were born in South Africa, but my son turned 13 in May, and we went to South Africa to uh, celebrate Meryl's dad's 80th birthday. And uh, I was kind of thinking both in the biblical notion of a man coming of age, a boy transitioning from boyhood into adulthood. And of course, there's no date to that really. But this was too good a moment not to utilize the occasion. And so I emailed my, my father, uh, who's 70, uh, 78, and Meryl's dad who's 80. And I said, gentlemen, I would like to take you to lunch I'm going to take my boy with me, and uh, I want you to speak a charge over my son. Now, neither of our fathers are men who are good with words. Meryl's dad's a carpenter who worked um, from Chingola, the copper belt, up in Zambia. Uh, That's kind of his background. My dad's dad died when he was 12, and uh, so he spent his high school years working as a postman during the day and going to night school. And uh, so they really, and, and so he's a, he was a welder, a boilermaker, a man who worked with his hands. So here we have two men who would far more readily work with their hands than with their words, sitting with my 13-year-old American California sneaker skater boy, and to see this moment where these two grandfathers, who falter with words but not with passion, extend a charge over my son. 
And when they were done, I turned to my boy and I said to him, I've not prepped you, but I want you to speak over your grandpas. And there was this incredibly sublime moment where my son turned to his two grandfathers and spoke gratitude and thanks for their investment in to us as Merrill and Chris. And I want to speak a little bit today around a father's conversation. When I landed in America 16 years ago, I assumed that we could start leadership training. And I did not know that my assumption meant that men and women already had had the key father conversations. And so we would start at this level when actually there is a precursor at this level of things that fathers under God do with their kids. And it was after a few years of frustration and irritation thinking, why isn't this working, that I realized how few of our men and women had ever had father conversations. What do dads talk about to their kids? What are dads supposed to engage their kids with? And so this really is some of the heart that has fashioned me because we now have to sit in America with a fatherless generation, absent father, missing father, unknown father, present but not in, in the story. And uh, I had to take a step back. And so I looked at the scripture and I had to ask myself, where is this story most prevalent? And in the New Testament, I think you know the Bible has two primary components. The older covenant, which had to do with the people of Israel. The newer piece, which had to do with Jesus and life after Jesus. And I found a man called Paul. Now what intrigued me about Paul, is he was never married. He never had his own biological sons. And yet he was the most prolific producer of sons in the new covenant. Who, who was he? he? He was a businessman. He was a tent maker. Wherever he went, he established his business, worked with other people in the marketplace, understood marketplace language, and en route he preached. And en route he empowered churches. And en route he helped others. But for me, when I peeped over his shoulders, I saw a businessman who had a love for an investment into the young guns to see them become steadfast strategic players in this great global story called the church. Does that make sense? So I want to take you to a text. It's, if you have your Bibles with you or your iPads or your iPhones or whatever you may use, if you don't have, it doesn't matter. Um, and I just want to take you through a few things that I think, gentlemen, are key father conversations. Let me speak to those of you who are dads for a moment. You may say to me today, Chris, my kids are older and I never had these conversations with them. I love the redemptive work of God because, number one, sir, you can still engage your sons and daughters even if they are older because they're desperately longing for these conversations with you. Number two, you may not be able to do that with your children because they may be 30 or 40 years old, but you've got grandchildren that you can have these conversations with. Number three, you can have them with some of the other young guns here in the life of this community who really do need these conversations. They are desperately wanting to sit over coffee and just engage around some of these big ideas because who else will have it with them? If you're a young gun and you say, Chris, I never had that with my dad. I had four fathers. My natural father, Pat, that was also, this seems like maybe it's an Aussie thing, your birth certificate says one name, but no one ever calls you that. Well, my father has no pat on his birth certificate. But he was a tough man, a construction worker. 
He didn't mess with us. He would take his belt off, put it next to the plate when we sat down for dinner. And if we didn't eat our food, he'd, be- he'd beat us. I mean, not like maliciously. He was just, this is my word. This is what you do. When I was 14, he caught me smoking. He walked into the room and he said, so if you want to act like a man, I'll treat you like a man. And he hit me. That's the kind of dad that I grew up with. He was a perfectionist. He was tough. He was robust. But he taught me things that were invaluable. He said to me, Chris, you run a danger. So when I had to fight two lawsuits in L.A., I would lie sometimes in the quiet on my bed, wondering what on earth am I doing in America? These crazy yanks are suing me. And my father's voice would say, you never walk away from danger. You run at danger. You run at danger. He said, you never give up. He wasn't a spiritual man. He came to faith later. He didn't pretend to be a philosophical man. He was a practical, salt-of-the-earth, grassroots man who instilled into me a gutsiness for which I am incredibly grateful. My second father is Merrill's dad. I'm not a son-in-law to him. I'm a son. He had three daughters, and uh, he treats me like his son. He was a man who taught me trust. My father was an alcoholic. And so I never grew up in a home of trust. If you've grown up in alcoholism or drug abuse, you know that it's shrouded with deception and dishonesty and manipulation. And so Ken brought me into a safe world of trust where what he says is true. What he announces will happen. Even if he has to kill himself, it will happen. So if he comes to my house in America and says, Chris, I'll repair the window, he could literally be repairing the window as we pack in the car to go to the airport because if Ken said it, it was going to happen. You could bet your bottom dollar on it. He taught me trust, which I never understood, and he taught me respect because he never spoke ill of another man. If he had nothing good to say, he would say nothing. Carl was my first father in the faith. He taught me a thinking man's faith. He taught me how to engage this gospel that I can ask questions, that I can wrestle with the truth, that I can be a doubter and that I can falter and stumble because that's part of this great spiritual journey of discovery that it's not always rah-rah, it's not always groovy, it's not always stoked. Sometimes there are black nights of the soul where you wrestle with God and you wrestle with the scripture and God is okay with that. And then my fourth father was Dudley Daniel, who taught me how to be a leader. And I'm so grateful to God for all of them, because, gentlemen, none of us are everything our sons or daughters need. We need other father-type voices in their story to finish or to add to what we cannot complete. And ultimately, and here's a great story, a point of freedom, is that God will always finish the parenting No matter how good a dad you are, no matter how bad a dad you are, God will finish the rest. Does that make sense to you? So back to Paul, businessman, preacher, church planter, global thinker, and he who is this incredible example of finding young guns and investing into him writes this. From the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Galatians is kind of, what, about eight-tenths of the way through the text. And it says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, see, he always traveled with young guns. He always was multiplying himself out to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'll skip a few verses. The story behind the story, I left my glasses at home, so I borrowed some. So I'm actually reading out of memory more than out of knowledge. I'm just trying to impress you that I'm actually quoting because I can hardly see a word here. (laughs) For I am now seeking, verse whatever it is, the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? And if, I'm, uh, if I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now forgive me, time doesn't allow me, actually I can't see, so I can't quote any more. But I want to just take you through a few father-son conversations, father-daughter conversations. And I want to ask you, open your heart to God. Love this morning, love the food, love the ambience, love the DVD going in, the music and the great coffees. But now this is a really cool moment where we can sit with Father God in the ambience of brotherhood and say, Chris, talk to me. Talk to me, because I didn't have an old man who helped me through some of these conversations. The first conversation a father has with his kids is a conversation of calling, not vocation. You see, most of us grow up, my father would say to me, Chris, you've got to have something to fall back on. Really? I've got to have something to fall back on. Or, you've got to get a good job, buddy, because if you get a good job, you can get, you can get a good wife, and if you get a good wife, you can have kids, and you can send them to the right schools, and then you can make sure that they get an opportunity to go to some tertiary education, and they can get married, and they can have a good job, and they can, and you think, is that really what God had in mind, that I get a good job? Is that the primary conversation? I was standing in a store, a sports store in Palm Springs just a little while ago. We were on vacation there. And I watched an interplay between an older man and his wife. I'm guessing he was probably late 60s, early 70s. She was of a similar age. And he was standing at the gun counter. Now, I know that you're a little nervous about guns. I'm not. I've just got my son a two-two rifle. And um, so we, when we're standing at the gun counter. And this woman walks up to her husband. And she looks at him and she says, I told you not to come to this counter. Now he looked a very dignified man. I would imagine he probably had a fairly good job, but he was now retired. And because his, because his job had given him, I'm assuming his identity and his strength and his, his sense of purpose in life, stepping from that role, probably as an executive or some, some businessman of note, he steps into a world where his wife rules the roost. And she said, I am leaving right now. And she turned and stormed out the door. And he kind of lagged on behind her, embarrassed that she would publicly rebuked him without any sense of leadership. And I stood there wanting to weep. I wanted to walk up to him and say, sir, with all due respects, tell this woman where she must get off right now. Just tell her where she must get off because no man gets treated that way. And I wondered, gentlemen. When we have a vocation conversation rather than a calling conversation, we actually don't empower our sons and our daughters. The calling conversation is that conversation that deals with my fundamental reason for living. It's what God put inside of me. It's what Paul writes here. And he says, and quoting Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah says, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, God took my dad, an alcoholic, and he took my mother who was unschooled, left school early, and he brought them together and seeded me inside of them. 
How could I ever moan that I've got an alcoholic father? It was God who put me into that story by His mystery and wonder. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I appointed you, God says. Calling gets expressed, gentlemen, no matter what my station is in life. So God called me, Chris. So whether I was at the university, whether I was a school teacher, whether I was an officer in the South African Defense Force, whether I was a church planter, whether I lived in Durban, whether I lived in America, whether I was the flavor of the month or getting sued, none of that influenced calling. See, when we have the vocation conversation and the expectation of the big job with the big bucks with the big car with the big house, when we lose the big, big job with the big bucks with the big house with the big car, we find ourselves as men faltering because we have nothing to hang our hat on. But when it's a calling conversation, Paul had a calling, he says. So whether he was this main profiled preacher or in prison, his calling Never changed. Some of his most profound writings happened when he'd lost everything. He said, even Demas has forsaken me. My mates have left me. I'm in prison. Luke, the physician, is the only one here looking after me. All my mates have left me. People have turned against me. They've spoken against me. But he was never down and out because he knew his calling was not contingent on where he lived, what his job was, how much money he earned, whether his mates liked him or not. Does that make sense? And part of our empowerment, gentlemen, is to have this conversation with our children. I have it with my 13-year-old boy. had it with my girls. He, he goes to school about 30, 40 minutes away, and we, we do the run a couple, a number of, obviously a number of times a week. But I find moments to engage him in a calling conversation so that one day, whether he's working in an orphanage in Africa earning nothing, living in a, in a faltering climate with the disorientation of a foreign culture or sitting in a boardroom in L.A. With a, with a suit on, neither makes him more important, neither defines him more readily because the story is calling, it is not vocation. Number two, the gospel. The gospel. Two parts to that. How am I doing? Oh, Lord. The gospel. You know, the gospel is magnificent, gentlemen, because it starts off with my wretchedness. There's, there's no pretense. The, the, gospel, the gospel is the most gutsy guy conversation you can ever have. Because it looks you in the face and it says, dude, this is who you really are. But not with judgment or condemnation. It's just this raw, naked reality. This is who I am. And Paul describes it to him, to, to the Galatians. And, and to my son, funny story. They were out with a slingshot the other day. I'm at home, it's Saturday, I'm preparing for the weekend, and um, him and his mate, they're outside in the backyard with a slingshot. My daughter who was working, uh, texted me, I said to her, can we have dinner together? And she said, Dad, if you come now, she had a break at work. So we dashed off, grabbed Tion, grabbed his mate, and off we went. And um, uh, have dinner, we come back. When, when I go outside to call them, their faces are a little ashen, not sure why. Come up, 10.30, a cop brings the doorbell. Open the door. Sheriff, good evening. How can I help you? Have you got a son about this age? I said, yes. He says, uh, were they playing with slingshots this afternoon? I said, absolutely. I said, I was so proud of them. They're not video games hiding inside like a bunch of wusses. They're outside, you know. They've got the pellet gun out and they've got the slingshot. And he said, do you know that they shot over the neighbor's house 
and they smashed her car window. I said, you know, I, I, they said that the neighbor was a little agitated by it. I said, but I'm so proud of them. So proud of them, you know. So another sheriff pulled up and they gave me the slingshot. I said, listen, just give me the lady's name. No problem. I'll call her in the morning. We'll fix the window. So the boys wake up in the morning. I said, the sheriff came around last night. And they're like, I said, guys, I am so proud of you. I said, no, you, you guys were stupid. You, you never shoot what you can't see. They were trying to see how high they could shoot. I said, any rock that goes up is coming down, baby. It's coming down. And you've got to make sure you know where it comes down. So I said, I'll tell, I tell you what you do. We're going to go up to her house right now. You're going to walk up to the door. You're going to say, hi, my name is Tian. My name's Evan. I broke your car window. I'm so sorry. I said, that's what we're going to do. And then we'll fix the window and you'll pay for it. That's the gospel. The acknowledgement of sin. Apology. And then watch, in that case, in the gospel sense, Christ cleanses me of all my sin. Now, that is the most wonderful thing for our kids. Uh, LA, the kids are always beautiful, you know. They, it's always well done. I want to say, it's a lie. It's not always, we've got to teach our kids their wretchedness. We can't always say, good job. Good job. You're amazing. Because they're not always amazing. My son was eight years old, and they lost their first soccer game in the season. And the shoulders went down, and the head went down, and there were tears. And I ran onto the field. I'm a passionate guy. I ran onto the field, grabbed his, his soccer jersey like this, and I got on my knees because I wanted him to see me face to face. I said, my boy, you never leave a soccer field like this. Never. Never. I said, now, here's the deal. Your team played badly, and you played badly. And he looked at me. All the other parents were, good job, good job. I thought... How can it be a good job and you lost? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's a good job when you win. That, that's the good job. I said, now, clear to wash your eyes away. I said, I want you to go to the other coach, and I want you to say, thank you, sir. Well done. Your team won. And then we'll talk in the car. So he gets in the car, sits at the back, big eyes, tears. I said, Bones, here's the deal, buddy. Dad will never lie to you. I will never say well done when it wasn't. Well, what good is it lying to him? He knows he didn't play well. I know he didn't didn't play well, so we'll just lie. I said, when you played well, I'll tell you. But you didn't play well today. See, the gospel gets me to face the realities of who I am. Otherwise, our kids spend the rest of their days fighting with God because Dad always said to me, good job, when it wasn't. And God will never lie to me. So facing the raw nakedness of who our children are is the first key towards, towards a redeemed God's story that's full of mystery and wonder and forgiveness. Which means that I as a parent must apply the gospel in my parenting. So when our kids blow it and there is that moment of acknowledgement of sin, apology, forgiveness, hugs, prayers and all of that, Like God, I have to wipe that from my memory. I cannot say to my kid, look at you. You're so useless. You always do that. Because God never says that to me. Though my sins were as scarlet, Meryl quoted last night, they shall be as white as freshly fallen snow. He, God, chooses to remember my sin no more. So in a simple drama, when I go to heaven to the throne of grace now, and I say, Father, I'm so sorry, I've done it again. He looks at me somewhat perplexed and confused, saying, now hang on, let's just get this right. You've done what? No, I've done it again. I've lusted again. He'll say, no, I don't remember that. No, 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 remember. Remember when that chick in the, at, at, at Glenelg Beach walked by? No, no, but I thought we sorted that out. 
because I remember your sin no more. So I apply a gospel-centered parenting, and I say, my boy, I remember that sin no more. I will never say to you, you always, because the gospel requires me to forgive and to forget and to apply grace into that story. Number three, approval. How am I doing time-wise? Approval. Paul says, I choose not to find my approval or pleasure with men. Now, I love being a dad, gentlemen. I love it. I, it's one of the things in life that brings me in most incredible joy, scrumming down with my kids on the journey. Even now with my 26-year-old daughter, when we're in Perth now, Monday, I know somewhere in the nine days we're there, they will, she will say to me, Dad, time for a coffee. And has this gorgeous 26-year-old, three kids, married, pastor's wife, and her and I go and have a little, in the best sense of the word, romantic, flirtatious time of dad and daughter just loving each other and speaking into each other's lives. But here's the deal. One of my conversations as a father with my kids is to transition them from approval and pleasure they get from me to approval and pleasure they get from him. One of the saddest days with each of my kids is that moment where their head cocked a little to the side and their eyes squinted and they look at me and they say in their hearts, so you're not perfect after all. And I want to say, no, not yet. I'm not ready for you to face reality. Can we just live in a little bit of deception just a little bit longer? Can, can I just remain perfect in your eyes? Can I just be a superhero for another five days? But there's that moment of, really, Dad? Really? So that's who you really are. But it's a sublime God moment because if I fathered well, I've let them look at me as a representation of my great heavenly father. And then comes that moment where God says, step aside, boy, step aside. And it's that moment where they look and they really, dad, so you're not perfect. And as I step aside, they see the heavenly father and they know his approval and his pleasure because that's my purpose is to point them towards him. I happen to be the conduit. I happen to be the baton carrier for a period of time. And then it's time to step aside and they find their approval and their pleasure from him. Gentlemen, please hear me. Working with our daughters is one of the most important things you will do. Please don't give that away to your wife. Your wife will, taught, will teach them girls' skills, makeup, the whole menstruation thing, which we don't get anyway. I mean, we don't have a clue what happens there, do we? It's awkward for us. We see the blood lying around, and, we see, and it's like, ah! So, so I'm not even pretending I know what happens. I don't want to know what happens. I don't want to know how it works. I don't know how you're supposed to treat it, but... What my wife cannot give my girls is their feminine definition. Her sense of sexuality. That's what I give her as a man. That's what I give her as a dad. Where this is the first lap that she sits on that's safe. These are the first lips that kiss her that are safe. These are the first arms that wrap around her that are safe. This is the first person who takes her to, I don't know the stores here. Let's say Gap in America because it's easier. And I take her there and she gets her little skirt and she walks out, the little eight-year-old, and flicks a little butt and does the eye flashing thing and looks at you. And it's the safe place where she discovers her beauty and you speak love and you speak magnificence and you speak affection over her. And she discovers that's the safe place. Because when Mr. Sweaty Palms comes and honks his horn outside in a rinky-dinky car or a flashy car, she does what she says, to hell with you, bro. I'm not coming outside. If you want, you come to my door and you speak to my dad. And if my dad's happy with it, then we go out. 
Why? Because she's tasted the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of a man who loves her with, without complication and with simplicity. What we do, gentlemen, and I know the teenagers can be a bit awkward sometimes, a bit emotional. We just say, come on, the missus, you sort this out. It's, it's a, as if it's her job. It isn't, sir. It is yours. It is your job to sit her down when she gets emotional and love her through that. And so she discovers the authenticity of a, of a real man. And she's not going to get caught up with a guy with sweaty palms who says, if you really love me, you'd let me. You're kidding me? When she comes down with that skirt that's too short, you say to her, you know, I love and respect you too much to let you go out with that. Go upstairs and put a proper skirt on. You don't whisper to the missus, she can't go out like this. No, sir, it's your job. Because you are the man who loves her like no other man will. Care for her like no other man will until Mr. Right comes along and she will know it because she's tasted the authentic. And she cannot taste the authentic through your missus. She tastes it through you. Next one, how are you doing? All right, next one. What are some of the other father conversations we'll have? I'll just quickly, there are more, but I'll just quickly go through one or two and, and we'll land. Paul goes to Jerusalem. Here is the man who wrote most of the New Testament. Here is the man whom the Lord appeared to on the road to Damascus. Here was the man who'd been in prison and been lashed and beaten and stoned. And he goes to Jerusalem and he asks them two things. He says, I want to know, is my message accurate? And I want to know, is my modus operandi true? What's my point? One of the great father conversations we have is the conversation of accountability. Some time ago, we were sitting with a room of church planters, and I happened to have friends of ours who church planted. He's French Mauritian, planted into Toronto, Canada. And um, we were sitting in this room, and uh, I turned to Sharon, his wife, and I said, Sharon, can you tell us a little bit? You landed in McPherson International Airport in Toronto, Canada. You'd never been to Canada. You'd never been to Toronto. You'd never been to Mississauga, which they planted. Why would you leave South Africa, they had a house that was featured in Home and Garden, a magnificent home. They left that home, they left the safety and sanctity of friends, that he was a CPA, chartered accountant, so he had an incredible business. Why would you leave all of that and move to Canada? And she looked almost in a moment's disbelief and she said this, the one thing, even though her and Lois have had differences over the years, she said, the one thing I've known about my man is that he's accountable. That he puts his life in the hands of others for perspective and input. And she said, if my husband can put his hands in the life of men that he loves and trusts, I can trust him. And I left my homeland, my home and garden house, my fancy job to go into a city where they knew no one. They planted a church. They'd never been to Canada. They knew no one in Canada. They went to a city they'd never visited before but looked at it from Google it. Why? Because her husband made himself accountable. She trusted him as a result of that. One of the great gifts, gentlemen, we can give our families and certainly our kids is modeling accountability. That moment when they look at you and me and they say, ah, you're not who you, you're not that Mr. Perfect superhero, is the moment of transitions where they see you make your life a point of access to people whom you love and trust. Paul did not have to go to Jerusalem. 
He did not have to get the input from the other disciples, but he chose to do it because of the safety and the sanity of it all. Does it make sense? One more, one more, one more. I'll land with this. Father's conversations. Give your family, give your children a big faith adventure. Common wisdom is get a big house, it's your kid's inheritance. Make sure that you put money away in retirements, your kid's inheritance. And I believe in all of that, and I do that. But there is a greater story that we've got to put our kids in, and that is a global God adventure where faith is pivotal. Where faith is pivotal, gentlemen. We have spent, Meryl and I, have spent an enormous amount of money taking our children around the world with us. My son at third grade got up and all the kids had to say, tell one thing that no one in this class knows about you. My, th- my third grade boy got up and he said, I have got friends all over the world. Why? I want my kid, kids to be able to sit around the fire in an African village eating the food that smells different, tastes different, looks funny. And as well as sitting in the company of princes with fancy knives and forks that they don't even know how to describe or define, that they're equally comfortable because my job is to put my kids in a faith story that's bigger than they could ever imagine. I want them to feel comfortable with nations and cultures and languages and ethnicities and foreign cities. That's the greatest gift I can give them. What good is it when I die, I put 200 or 300 grand in their hands and say, have a great life or... I have put them all over the world and they've seen God's provision. They've seen when we didn't have money for tickets and we prayed together as a family and the money came in and we bought the ticket and we rejoiced together. Can I tell you story after story like that, which for me is a far greater gift than putting a few hundred thou in my kids' hands. My daughter lives in Perth. I want her to live in LA. I want my grandkids to be around the corner. But the day they came to speak to us, she looked with those beautiful eyes and she said, Dad, you put the nations into our heart. We cannot but move and go and invest ourselves in another nation. Father's conversations is that we put our kids into a large faith story. I close with this comment. Our kids are deeply gifted when they watch us wrestling with a current faith story. Even if it doesn't turn out the way you thought it would, it's a gift to your children. Does that make sense? The newest sneakers, that's not the best gift you can give them. The coolest schools is not the best gift you can give them. A car when they turn 18 or whatever is not the best gift you can give them. The best gift you can give them is a faith adventure where God breaks in on their lives. Thank you very much. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.